the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are as a whole capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a favor? Please help us reach a growing audience by taking just a moment to give us a high rating on your podcast provider. This podcast is supported by listeners. Please consider joining me at Substack, where you'll also have access to frequent posts on current and historical events. It's an absolute delight to have Derek Liebart in the house. Derek Liebart is a historian, strategist, and management consultant. He's the author of a critically acclaimed new book from Macmillan, Unlikely Heroes, Franklin Roosevelt, His Four Lieutenants, and the World They Made. Derek Liebart's many recognitions include the 2020 Harry S. Truman Book Award, and two of his books have been selected as Washington Post Best Books of the Year. Derek Liebart, congratulations on your outstanding new book, and thank you so much for joining us today. Well, I'm grateful to be included, Jim. Derek Liebart, you're an accomplished writer with a remarkable range. What prompted you to join the legions of authors who've written about Franklin Roosevelt? Because it became increasingly apparent that so many myths surrounded the Roosevelt presidency. Indeed, there might not be a modern presidency that is so misunderstood and so freighted by myths. And the reason for that is because historians have always focused the spotlight on the Titanic leader himself, on FDR. And because the early histories on the Roosevelt presidency were written by deep, deep admirers of FDR and of the New Deal, obscuring lots of objectivity. But when the spotlight is nudged away from that titan himself, a very different FDR can be seen, as well as a different presidency. Derek Liebart, let's talk about for a moment the big picture. Michael Mandelbaum, a professor at Johns Hopkins, did a very comprehensive, highly praising review on the American purpose that we'll link to. And he notes that it's the 90th anniversary of FDR's first inaugural. There's also new books that are quite serious by Jonathan Darman, David Petruccia. Why is FDR right now coming into people's minds? Because America faces extremities in our own era, whether it's the economic undulations, whether it's an altered stance in the global environment. Time and time again, when America is encountering crisis, there is search not only for leadership, but for hope that perhaps government can work. And there are many parallels between FDR's 12-year presidency and today, questions of political extremism and violence, gross inequality, healthcare crises, indeed war in Europe once again. Americans seek leadership. They wonder if government in some fashion can deliver. And FDR, as such a titan, a nearly larger-than-life figure, appeals all the more at such moments. 
Where did FDR learn to lead? He would answer, perhaps, that it was his entitlement. He saw himself not merely as the American rich of that era, the noblesse oblige graduated from his prep school at Groton and Harvard, but he saw himself as something distinct from the American upper class. He saw himself really as old Dutch settlers in the Hudson Valley, which placed him far above in his mind the merely moneyed of that era. And he would have responded that leadership, questions of social justice were imbued in him, in his prep school and by his parents. And it was a highly improvisational type of leadership that was distinct to his personality. Now, please tell us about these four extraordinary figures you write about in relation to FDR. Well, as you know, Jim, and as all historians have noted, FDR, after the polio that struck in 1921, combined with a devastation in his marriage that arose from his infidelity, perhaps changed FDR, gave him a deeper, more empathetic character. Historians can debate that. But certainly FDR had a keen, keen sense of being able to identify talent as well as being able to identify vulnerabilities in individuals. His wife, Eleanor, explained that after the polio, by the 30s, FDR only felt comfortable around outcasts. It is no coincidence that each of the four topmost officials in his administration, the only ones to be in office at the heights from the very early days of 1933, in fact, nine, 90 years ago this month, until his death in 1945, each of these four were as crippled, to use the term of the day, as crippled as were the president himself. And he brought them near and he rose and enabled them to soar. And he also had them each take massive portfolios. Please go through the four people and their portfolios a bit, if you would. They're so fascinating. Yes, indeed. And it's important for us to note that this was a unique time in American history. Massive amounts of power suddenly were aggregating in Washington itself. And this, too, was an era when a cabinet secretary was seen as a statesman. There was a 10-person cabinet, and there were really few countervailing pressures in American life to what an assertive government might want to impose, for better or for worse, at that time. There were no, say, think tanks, for example, regulatory agencies and the like. So a cabinet secretary could have a huge portfolio and would, would routinely be greeted by 19-gun salutes when they would visit various cities. It was a much bigger deal in an era when newspapers would publish verbatim all Senate speeches. 
So the four characters on which I focus, who were FDR's closest associates from the very beginning to the very end, one was Harry Hopkins, who had a de facto role as Secretary of Public Welfare. He at one time was America's largest employer because running the Work Progress Administration meant employing millions and millions of Americans. And he became very close to FDR by the late 1930s. And then during World War II, he was the closest political military advisor a president has ever had. But Harry was crippled. 41 at the start of the administration, he was racked by ulcers. 1937, he had two-thirds of his stomach removed for cancer. But Harry suffered grievously, and so much of it was unnecessary because he would throw out his medicine, he would flush his nutrients uh, down the drain. The sicker he would get, along with heavy drinking, it brought him closer and closer to FDR. And Roosevelt and Churchill, for example, would send back and forth top secret cables worrying about Harry's health. And if Harry could make such sacrifices, who were the rest of us to complain about our own needs? So Harry's vehicle to power in many ways was the illness, and so much of it he brought on himself. The other hero was the profoundly powerful Secretary of the Interior, Harold Ickes. But the Secretary of Interior role was just one of easily 16 that he held. He was the energy czar, for instance. And he had a role that was so powerful that it could be seen as chancellor of that administration. And Ickes, as would be diagnosed in 1945, when he finally saw a psychiatrist, was bipolar. And he had acknowledged at the beginning of the administration that he kept himself going by barbiturates and whiskey. And there would be days and days when he could not even speak to his colleagues or to FDR, for that matter, in his depressions and in his ebullience. The third character is Frances Perkins, the first woman to serve in a presidential cabinet. Very sad, very insular, very lonely. Her husband was hospitalized for mental illness, as would be her daughter from time to time, always strapped for money. She had known FDR longer than any of the other officials in Washington since before the polio. And Frances came to Washington being charged by her opponents of abandoning her poor husband in a New York asylum. And she took on the portfolio, not only of Secretary of Labor, but also in charge of immigration in that era. And her role is poorly understood because we focus on Frances Perkins for domestic policy what she accomplished in social security and labor rights and minimum wage. But all these individuals were multifaceted and she became FDR's primary source 
of intelligence, political military intelligence, on the crumbling European balance by the late 1930s. Remember that FDR was highly cosmopolitan himself. He spoke fluent French. His German was competent. He read Spanish easily, and his Dutch was conversational. He was very much an international citizen, as was Perkins with her fluent French and competent German. So as labor secretary, she traveled much in Europe, gave her intelligence directly back to FDR. And come the war, Frances Perkins was pivotal for mobilizing the female workforce throughout the United States. The fourth hero was Henry Wallace, who ran the biggest of all government departments during the 1930s, which was agriculture, and who then FDR selected in 1940 to run with him. And Wallace was elected vice president. The great historian Arthur Schlesinger describes Wallace as empty at the core, as being remote from much of humankind. Henry Wallace had an intelligence that the New York Times described as freakish, an intellect that allowed him to speak as an equal, both with Einstein, with whom he sat on the podium at Harvard's 1935 commencement, and also with John Maynard Keynes. He could have conversations with both. And both the combination of Wallace's tortured genius and his own vast knowledge of science, of climate, of geography, that appealed in turn to FDR's astounding intellect. And there's always been a mystery about why did FDR select Henry Wallace to run as vice president in 1940? It can be found in Frances Perkins' vast oral history. FDR told her flat out, I like the way Henry thinks. They could have deep, deep conversations. So these four were vital not only to rescuing democracy during the 1930s, but indeed with FDR to rescuing civilization itself during World War II. And the heroism that I write about is how all five of them, including President Roosevelt, were able to overcome tortured souls and physical incapacity to rise to the fore as great leaders. One of the many fascinating things in your book is your revelation of the intellect of Franklin Roosevelt. Most people don't think of him as particularly intelligent. I think, oddly enough, they think of him more as facile. Is that fair to say? That How is absolutely fair. Yeah, that, that, yeah, Jim, that is absolutely correct. And that comes from the early post-New Deal historians. FDR saw himself as an English-Georgian gentleman in a way in which every arduous task had to appear easy, in which one was not supposed to show effort and hard work. And for instance, he would laugh and laugh at Frances Perkins over her talk about statistics. It was like making fun of the nerds. But at the same time, he would hire away 
her best statisticians to work as personal assistants for the president. FDR's intellect can be seen in his dialogues with Henry Wallace on an array of complex subjects. Henry Wallace was the foremost agronomist in in the Western Hemisphere of that era. And FDR prided himself on being a tree farmer and running his 1,500-acre estate along the Hudson. They would have deep quasi-technical conversations about what we now would call bioscience, biotech, genetics, et cetera, and the growing of corn, the growing of trees, the climate. And we take it from Henry Wallace that come the war, FDR turned out to have an astounding head for logistics, being able to talk again one-on-one with the generals, with the naval commanders in the assembly of men, ships, materiel. So time and again, we see this supposedly casual and insouciant FDR drilling very deep. As you show in the book, and as many people observe in a, a less knowledgeable way, FDR's relationship to issues of race is complicated. It's Tell complicated. us about that and well, how we should understand that today. That is an area of FDR myth that becomes troubling to reveal. Just as his approach to Jewish immigration from Nazi persecution is troubling to examine closely, it has always been said on civil rights issues, racial issues, for instance, that, well, there was only so much that FDR could do because he had to placate the South, the Democratic Solid South, which had a hammerlock on the Democratic Party itself. But that proves not to be the case. FDR sadly would use the N-word from time to time, and decent people, even in that era, did not do so. He had a condescending view of Black Americans in combat roles during World War II, and he never supported the anti-lynching bills of the late 1930s. And indeed, when the anti-lynching bill of 1940 was all set to pass the Senate, he blocked it cold for political reasons. FDR was ruthlessly self-centered on questions as searing as civil rights or Jewish immigration. It had to suit his political needs first and foremost, and then he would back a program or an initiative. How should we think about that today? Well, we need to remind ourselves that great leaders in a democracy don't have to be nice. Great leaders in a democracy, yes, they have to have some bond, some appeal with their fellow citizens, but we not idolize them as necessarily being nice or even assume they are. Why would we assume, for instance, that FDR, such a pivotal, powerful role at that time, wouldn't delight in going through the tax records of his opponents? or 
wouldn't feel envy and jealousy toward other men, especially other men of his class who he believed had shunned him in earlier years. Francis Perkins believed that FDR was a tortured soul, which is so, so different from the FDR that we recall from the news reels. And indeed, it, it takes a heroic spirit for FDR to overcome what indeed was so much deep-rooted bitterness and anger. And as his son-in-law, John Buttinger, said, who worked closely with FDR in the White House, the rage that FDR felt. We don't think of FDR raging as he would, say, with Harold Ickes. And the invective that FDR was able to spew in a argument, all the goddamns this and the goddamn that. You know, it sounds mild to our ears in the 2020s, but for an Episcopalian vestryman to let himself go, and that's what FDR called it, letting himself go. For an Episcopalian vestryman to let himself go to that extent shows a boiling over rage that was just barely contained beneath that insouciant exterior. Roosevelt, in many ways, is the father of our country today. The New Deal, the world order. Could someone like him arise today? I don't think so, because that was a presence of its own time. And we also have to be careful about what we wish for. There's been so much discussion in the press, certainly in the Biden White House, over a 2020s New Deal, or replicating FDR's leadership. And in the Oval Office, the portrait of George Washington has been replaced by a portrait of FDR. That's fine and well. But when we talk about the New Deal and New Deal governance, we're implicitly asking for larger-than-life figures. We're asking for a very heavy hand from government. And that is not the way America at its best works. Is the FDR era ending? Well, historians would argue that it ended with the Reagan revolution, that democratic coalition of the cities, the rural, the labor unions, that that coalition has unfolded. But one could say is, you just did that that era, and again, it's not just FDR, but it's these lieutenants who created the New Deal programs and who then implemented them and who then built and ran the great institutions. That shapes our life today, not just social security, but the agricultural in, uh, compact, the, the subsidies, for better or for worse, of American agriculture. That was a profound change in American life. The very fact that government has a role to protect the vulnerable during peacetime, as it does during a war, that was a, a transformative change in American life of that era, which we agree to today. And arguably, that political economy model is under stress. We continue to spend in a deficit way, almost at Roosevelt levels, but in peacetime. <laughs> We have an international order. 
that he created basically, or certainly was a key inspiration for, and it seems to be under stress. Is this just time for a new order or is Roosevelt still relevant? How do you suggest we think about Roosevelt as we look ahead? Roosevelt's style of leadership, if there was such a style, and Francis Perkins concluded that he was the worst administrator she had ever encountered. It was one of constant improvising. It was a return to that ruthless self-centeredness. It was whatever would suit FDR's electoral needs. When it came to World War II, it was Henry Wallace who, if one looks at the headlines, 1940, it was Wallace's stirring rhetoric that really moved the country bit by bit toward war. Certainly FDR wasn't making the case, but Henry Wallace as an Iowa farmer was seen as salt of the earth, middle America. And if all of a sudden Henry Wallace as vice president-elect, as vice president, was making the case for why America's destiny was inseparable from that of Europe, that stirred the Midwest and thereby much of America. And indeed, it was Henry Wallace's great Century of the Common Man speech in 1942 that laid out America's purpose in the world. Historians have made so much about Henry Lewis's April 1941 essay in Time about the American century. It was completely overshadowed right when it was written. But it was Henry Wallace's Century of the Common Man that was turned into a movie by Paramount that got an Oscar nomination, was translated into 20 language, languages, and indeed laid out a post-war role for America. So whenever we start looking deep, we can see that FDR, to be sure, set the tone. No one was better at uplifting the injured than FDR, and he certainly uplifted each of these four as he uplifted the nation. But when it comes to creating the policy, executing it, building the institutions, we have to look elsewhere. FDR came of age at a time when a number of world leaders, Churchill, de Gaulle, even Hitler, Stalin, Mao, had a tremendous faith in their individual destiny. How do you process that? It was. It was political era of the big man of the time. In the 1930s, the world seemed to be going in the era of collectivism, fascism, syndicalism, national socialism, all with a great man. FDR had that gift of the Greeks of moderation. And despite the fame, despite the prominence, he handed on to us a still very moderate presidency, certainly compared to today. Nobody was better at corner cutting than FDR and compromising civil liberties, just to think of Japanese American internment. But there was much that FDR could have done to further the power of the presidency 
from which he held back time and time again. No nationalization of the banks in 1933, as many reasonable people urged. No push, push, sudden rush into war, even when the future of Britain was at stake. Lots of moderation. And to that end, it is a lesson for today. Fine, one can be a celebrity, one can be prominent, but there is also an American demand for moderation in the presidency. Derek Liebart, you've written a lot about the transition of the world order leadership from Britain to the United States. Please tell us a little bit about that and what you think it might portend or suggest to us today when many think America's leadership role was being challenged. Well, one of the largest myths of that era that needs to be brushed away is that there was a friendship between Roosevelt and Churchill. If there was anything remotely like it, it would have gone one way from Churchill to FDR. Churchill, as you know, was a warm, ebullient person, certainly toward white people. And he had friends across all parties and indeed classes. FDR, in contrast, the woman who was closest to him, much closer than Eleanor, his de facto chief of staff, Missy Lahend, said this was a man incapable of friendship. And that was echoed by Francis Perkins as well. FDR had no friends. Harry Truman, his vice president in 1945, said this was the iciest man he had ever encountered. So there was no FDR-Churchill epic friendship to begin with. But FDR, like nearly all Americans at the juncture of World War II, early 1940s, right toward the end, nobody was thinking about America as a post-war superpower. That ambition from Henry Luce, the American century, yes, it might have been held in some Northeast drawing rooms, but it was a passion that wasn't shared, say, in Chicago and Santa Fe or San Francisco. In fact, all expected the Depression to return after World War II, except the very brainy Henry Wallace and FDR himself. But it was a world order that was changing fast. The war began with the Royal Navy as the most powerful, very quickly dwarfed by America's economic power, let alone the U.S. Navy. So by the time FDR died, April 12, 1945, the U.S. was globally deployed. And one way to think of this change is 90 years ago, when FDR was inaugurated this week, we would have spoken about our country as these United States. It was a very common way to describe our country, these United States. Indeed, at a, a prayer before the formal inauguration, FDR's Groton headmaster spoke about Franklin Roosevelt to be president of these United States. 12 years later, after the Depression, after 
the cusp of victory of World War II, nobody spoke of these United States. It was the United States. It was a United Nation newly defined as a superpower in 1944 and far more cohesive than it had ever been in American history. One of the many great things about your book is it has so much rich detail about individuals, incidents. It brings it to life in a very unique way. And I'd like to ask you a moment about that. What were your models for writing in this way? And how did you do the research that is so extraordinarily uh, rich on this? I, it's truly uh, not to put you on the spot, but it's pretty astonishing. Well, to address your question of models, who would many of us look to as a fine historian that could also be a great storyteller? I would point to Richard Norton Smith, who is one of America's foremost historians, biographer, uh, Nelson Rockefeller, Herbert Hoover, and most significantly, as will come to your attention, Jim, next month, the definitive biography of Gerald Ford, which is an entire story. I was privileged to read the manuscript, the entire story of the life and times of Gerald Ford, which in many ways is also far, far more heroic than we would have remembered from those decades. So a great historian such as Richard Norton Smith is a model for my own work in trying to combine detail with storytelling. The question of how one can conduct some such research, especially during the COVID era, my book is full of new material. And the material arose from overlaying the vast oral histories of Francis Perkins and Henry Wallace, about 5,000 pages each, with the three million word Harold Ickes diaries and the Hopkin papers. Some of this material is online, but the new insights arise when you overlay the materials from these four who were the closest of all to Roosevelt. And you could see how each of them would interpret an incident or how each of them would chronicle their dialogues with FDR. So you could have actual storytelling and dialogues, and they would pool their impressions of FDR himself. They would talk about his gifts, his vanities, his cruelties, and they would put this in diaries, later in oral history. And when one looks at that pooled source of information, new insights emerge. FDR was a master of the communications of his day. What would an FDR-type leader need to learn from him to navigate our current world of social media and all the positive and negatives that go with that, all the interconnections of people's lives and work and business and government and all the rest? Americans would always say during his presidency, even those who hated him, and perhaps a good 40% of the country did indeed hate him, 
but they always felt that there was a personal connection with FDR, whether one was a sharecropper in Louisiana or Wall Street master of the universe. You felt a personal connection with FDR, and that was part of the gift. And when you met with him, even though you realized that you were falling prey to his flattery, you could feel the strength. His first meeting with Charles Lindbergh, for example, would have been in April 1940. And Lindbergh, to be sure, liked FDR despite himself, and he realized the danger in his liking FDR because he realized he was going to be compromised, and he saw that as a danger. So it was FDR's gift, and people have attributed it at the time to, was it because of his immobility? Was it that which made him so intense? At the time, people spoke of his uh, feminine intuition, quote unquote, a phrase of the time. But what they meant was an acute, acute intuition, an ability to grasp another person's soul, what we would call empathetic today. Can that gift be replicated? Well, people have described subsequent leaders, not just presidents, but actors, CEOs, as so extraordinarily empathetic, but it ain't that easy. And it seems that FDR was distinct and also, again, a product of those times. If you could sit down with him one-on-one, -on -one, what would you ask him? It would not be a pleasant experience for you or for me, I would say, to sit down with FDR one-on-one, -on -one. because from this vantage point, now we would be wise to his manipulations and his flattery. For one, FDR would have to make it known from the get-go that he knew more about any subject than we did. So perhaps if one is an expert on management consulting or an expert on environmental analyses, FDR would make it clear at the get-go that he knew more about the subject than you did, and he would banter around. He might tell some outright lies, but who is going to put down or quarrel with that beaming president across the big Oval Office desk or at dinner? So time and time again, strong individuals found it very uncomfortable to work with FDR. Figures like Dean Acheson, for example, who would go on to become a Secretary of State, or Newton Baker, who had been Secretary of War during World War I. Time and again, strong individuals would be wise to FDR's one-upsmanship, his manipulations. They would see an insincerity in his smile and perpetual ebullience. So it could be discerning for the, the more acute guest to be around FDR in the first place. And how did he, in your view, develop the capacities to elicit such extraordinary performance from the four highly accomplished people you focus on 
his lieutenants. Because nobody on the planet was better at uplifting an individual who was down. If your son was killed as a Marine fighting in the Pacific, as was Harry Hopkins' youngest boy, nobody would be better to rally around you and to buck you up. When Harold Ickey's wife was killed in a hit and run accident, all of FDR's pretense and manipulations would just be tossed aside. He would be there, he would help you, he would lift you up. It didn't necessarily have to be crisis. That other tortured soul, Henry Wallace, said he would never talk with FDR without leaving FDR's presence, being completely uplifted. You know, no matter the political betrayals and the back backroom chatter and so forth. FDR was superb at lifting up the injured. And each of these four, by no coincidence, were injured themselves. And he enabled them to execute. And he empowered them. They stayed loyal from beginning to end. And they were outsiders who could take it as each proved over those dozen years and who fulfilled the requirements that he saw in Kipling's poem, if life is a test, it's endurance, you must, must persevere. And the heroism in all these five, to include FDR, is to have that blithe spirit, indeed a sense of humor, which all of them possessed, you know, to rise above the day-to-day -day torments. And and to ultimately uh, do what was best for the country. FDR, in today's terms, died of a young man. He was in evident decline toward the end. And of course, he was keenly aware that Woodrow Wilson, who he served, had, had a tragic ending for health reasons. We're now looking at health again with a number of older political figures. What lessons should we take from the Roosevelt experience? Well, in those days, 63 was considered old, and smoking was a near universal anodyne. FDR for a while, Harry Hopkins would smoke four packs a day. Age would depend. It's been an ongoing debate among historians about the extent to which FDR was impaired during the 1940s, during his years as warlord. And the decline was rapid in 1944. But here again, it's seeing what you want to see, and it's astounding to see his closest associates and even the press. After he died in April 1945, they would all say, Oh, that was inevitable. Yes, we knew it was coming. He was so infirm the past two or three years. But at the time, in 43, 44, 45, that was not being said. And a true test for the extent to which people discerned FDR's failing health was the election of Roosevelt and Truman in November 44. Now, if everyone who in their memoirs said they knew FDR would never make it and was collapsing, you can tell by Harry Truman's calendar that nobody was courting Harry Truman as an imminent chief executive at all. If 
Ickes, Perkins, others who believed FDR was in terminal decline, if they were so certain of that, there would have been much, much more attention to Harry Truman. According to Truman's calendar, there was none of that. So after the inauguration, 84 days later, yes, it ended. As you point out so well, Roosevelt loved history. He applied it in many ways. What would he want us to take away today, do you think, looking ahead? Because he probably did. Yes, he was a reader to an extent that historians, by and large, have missed. Of course, in his final years, when he was even more infirm than usual, he would pick up anything, a detective novel. But that 20,000-volume library in his house at Hyde Park, much of which he created, is a thoughtful, thoughtful library. He dwelled on history, and he read great histories. He had an expansive view of the American experience, of which he felt a part. It was his family that had been inextricable from it. But he had a, an embracing view of Americans. So many Jewish people served in that administration, for example. He had no prejudices against Jews and Italians at a time when so many upper-class Americans did. Yes, he might have kept track of what high officials were Jewish, and he did keep track of that. But on the other hand, he was not a man who allowed his bitterness to uh, cloud his affinity with people. Um, I think he had great confidence in the American future, but he would have seen that future very, very hard to understand without himself at the center of it for <laughs> decades and decades to come. Well, Derek Liebart, is there any final point you would like to share? This is such a phenomenal book. I can't recommend it highly enough, whether you're just interested in history or Roosevelt himself or the changes we're now going through or leadership in any way. Uh, this book is just invaluable. If you ask for a final thought, because we have discussed such grim subjects, the Great Depression, World War II, some of the nastiness of politics, at the core of these five heroes, including FDR, was an astounding sense of humor. FDR could even tolerate a joke being told about him, although that could never be done in public. You could never tell a joke about FDR in his presence in public, but he could take good ribbing. He was a great teaser himself. He could be a cruel teaser, but he had a, a fine sense of humor, as did each of the others. And to get through such extremity of the Great Depression, of the worst war in history, one had to maintain that humor, and it, it built small unit cohesion, and he excelled at that. Not just small unit cohesion, these four, but bringing an entire nation together so that we now refer to it as the, as the United States, not these United States.
Well, Derek Liebart, it's been an absolute delight and honor to have you with us. And thank you again for your outstanding new book that everyone will find something of great value in, Unlikely Heroes, Franklin Roosevelt, His Four Lieutenants, and the World They Made. And thanks to you, our listeners, for being with us. Please send me ideas for future guests and topics. Follow us on Twitter at James Strzok and connect via our website, Serve to Lead, or subscribe at Substack. And Derek Liebmart, where can people follow you? Oh, goodness sakes. Uh, I can easily be Googled. I could easily be emailed. That's on the net. Feel free to give me a call or send me an email. Very generous, and I'm sure people will. Thank you again, and until next time, take care, be strong, and serve to lead. These are not dark days. These are great days, the greatest our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our station, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race.